Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello, I'm Chris Wynn. And welcome to a very special edition of Rocker Report. It's not often we have an opportunity to speak to someone who was at the heart of the club during probably the biggest transformation in Sunderland's history. Today we're speaking to a man who was pivotal in overseeing Sunderland's move from our home at Roker Park into our fantastic new home at the Stadium Alike from his position as Chief Executive Officer and then Vice Chairman. Today I'm privileged to be speaking to John Ficklin. Welcome, John. Good morning, Chris. And I'm Good very morning. pleased to be able to speak to you this morning. Yes, we've had a few technical difficulties, so I'm, I'm very pleased to be speaking to you right now. So, knowing how much you, you love your football, I'm sure you're missing it as much as the rest of us at the moment. Yeah, it's not it's not good, is it? It's very very sad, really. But uh, you know, things are what they are, and we've just got to keep plodding away, and hopefully, we can get back up through those leagues. That's what we need uh, to do. If there's a silver lining, it does give us a chance to to look back at some brilliant days gone by, which um, sometimes we don't get often the chance to do. So, on on the note of the current day, I mean, do you get along to see Sunderland very often? Yes, I go. I virtually go to every game. This, I think I miss the the odd game during the course of the season. Obviously, I I live relatively locally, so uh, I get to I get to virtually all of the home games. I'm in exile now, so sometimes it's a curse. Uh, moving away and not being able to get to the game, but sometimes it's a blessing. Sometimes it's a blessing, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we'll come we'll come back to the the current uh, issues on and off the field with someone before we finish. But uh, what I want to do now is start from the beginning which has to be really where you got your love of Sunderland Association Football Club. I mean, was was this passed down to you like it is with so many of us? Yes, it, indeed it was. It was passed down through the through the family and, and close family friends. And uh, I first started going to Roper Park uh, when I was about, what, seven, seven, eight-year-old, 1959, 1960. So a long, long time ago. So who, around that time, obviously, I know you were young, but who, who were your favourite players? Uh, as you were growing up for something? Well, it was it, obviously Charlie Hurley was the main man at the time. And uh, one thing I can remember, look, looking back, that I remember being at the game when uh, Jimmy Montgomery made his home debut. So oh. that uh, that shows that that's a long, long time ago. <laughs> yeah, what, what were your earliest memories? Because I, I know, because I, I got it from, from my dad and he sat me down and <laughs> basically told me, told me all about it. But he used to talk of this progression around the ground at Roker Park where you progressed, you started off in one place and, and as you got older, you moved around. Was that the same as you? That that was the same as me, yeah. We used started off at the, the rear of the, the Roker end as was because it was a massive a massive end and it's here days. You, 
as you probably know, I think there was about 25,000 in the one end in, in terms of capacity. And then as I got a little bit older, I used to go to the, the back of the clock stand because there was a little bit of steelwork there where you could climb up and get a better view. So that's, uh, that's where I... That's where I was in the, the day that we got promoted in 1964, which was uh, probably from that era was probably the, the, the best memory that I've got, really. Yeah, that, that was our uh, first promotion, wasn't it? It tell. was indeed, yeah. It was, a, it was a great team. Charlie Hurley was obviously captain, Jimmy Montgomery. Uh, yeah, it was a really good team. Yeah, and then, you know, moving on a little bit, did you uh, did you get to see much of the 73 Cup run? Uh, I saw all of the 73 Cup run. Uh including the uh, the semi-final. But there was myself and two friends that we, we travelled all over the place to watching Sunderland. And we always said that uh, if, if unless we all get tickets, we're, we're, we will not go to Wembley. And in those days, we, we weren't season ticket holders, basically, because we couldn't afford them. And uh, we got one ticket between the three of us for Wembley. So I, I wasn't at Wembley, <laughs> would you believe? Thank Which you. is quite, quite ironic, but there you go. Uh, but I saw I saw all the other games. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot of people out there who some of their best memories are involve watching Sunderland and travelling the country, just like yourself. But what what I'd like to do as well is start building the picture of how you worked your way up to be able to take a position on the Sunderland board. So you left uh, Sunderland Polytechnic with a degree in mechanical engineering, and then you worked your way up uh, within the National Bus Company to be part of a successful management buyout of a subsidiary company in 1985 that you'd eventually go on to sell in the mid 90s. So it's a fair to say that a lot of hard work went on between you leaving Sunderland Polytechnic and then being on the on the board of Sunderland Football Club. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I I, I travelled around the country and going back to 1973 was when I was at Sunderland Poly. Uh, as, as as you say, I was I was involved as an engineer with a local bus company, and my my real claim to fame, although I wasn't at the Wembley final, I I ended off. I managed to get onto the open top bus on the parade through Sunderland. Uh, when the team came back, and uh, I've got a great so, photograph of myself just popping my head above the above the parapet as the as the bus comes through Wheat Sheaf, and uh, that was tremendous. Two three hours when we came in from Carville, so my connections with the buses was. Uh, was very convenient at that time. Did, was it just through connections, or did you manage to sneak on? <laughs> well, I, 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 ironically, I worked on the on the bus on the double decker. It, it, it had gone under a low bridge. That's how it was an open topper, and it was converted in the workshops. And I worked on on that for a little while, and then uh, I got the privilege of uh, actually driving it through to Sunderland. And then uh, there was a, a the sort of senior driver in the at, at Sunderland. Uh, took it over and I, I just sat downstairs at the back and I thought just 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 sit here John no one's going to say get off and suddenly <laughs> suddenly we set off to Carville and I just thought right that's it and uh, we pulled into the compounded Carville and then the, there, there he was Bobby Kerr Jimmy Montgomery carrying their fair cup onto the bus so that was uh, that made up for not going to Wembley. Brilliant. So you, you were the you were the important engineer who was needed just in case. <laughs> I, I was, yes, yes, yeah. That, that will do for me, yeah. <laughs> and if I have the date right, you joined the Sunderland board in February 1995. February and, 1995, yeah. Yeah, and was it was it John Featherstone who was officially the chairman at this point? At the time, he was he was the chairman, but Bob was the the major shareholder. How it came about was that. Obviously, I sold I sold my my company and uh, relatively young age, and suddenly I'm faced with 
what 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 do I do in life? Um, bearing in mind, I'd been involved with the the bus industry since I was 16 years old and hadn't known anything else. And it was the the accountants and business advisors that that we were involved with at the time. We're also involved with the football club. And uh, the, the the senior guy there said. Uh, what are you going to do, John? And I said, I have no idea, really. Uh, he said, well, why don't you get involved with the, the other love of your life? And I, I always remember those words. And he said, uh, I said so I said, well, what, what's that? And he said, Sunderland Football Club. And then I, I just said, wow, well, why do you ask that? And uh, obviously, Bob at the time has you know, spent a lot of time and effort in trying to get the, the new ground adjacent to Nissan, if you recall. Yeah. Yeah. And after a, a, a lot of protracted discussions, the, the, the planning was rejected at that time. And uh, I think quite understandably, Bob just felt, oh, you know, it was, it was a real blow, to, not only to him personally, but naturally to the club. So the guy said, well, you know, maybe have a word with Bob. And naturally, I knew who Bob Murray was, but I'd never met Bob. So I, I had a couple of conversations with him. We, we sort of hit it off straight away, I think, together, the two of us. And uh, after a couple of couple of meetings, um, we I'm sure you'll not mind me saying, we, we went for a, a couple of drinks together and had a chat. And it turned out it was a bit longer than we'd planned. And I woke up the next morning as vice chairman and chief executive of Sunderland Football Club. And that that was the that was the reality of the situation. And that, uh, and as you say, formally I I joined the board in February 1995. Although the discussions had taken place during the latter half of 1994. So that that was it. Quite unusual. Yeah, I should go out more if that's going to happen when I go out for a few drinks. I should. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think you might have just answered this for us but um i was going to ask if you did actually know bob murray before because you always seemed uh, so close uh, just from the off it sounds like you just got on <laughs> yeah indeed uh no i'd uh, i'd never met bob like all sunderland supporters I, I knew who bob was and you know bob had had some difficult times at the club and he'd, he'd managed to keep the club going th- through those times and uh we just seemed to hit it off together straight away you know we had uh Totally different styles and different qualities, really, and I think that those combined made us a great team. And uh, I, I, you know, looking back, it was we were the, probably the right people to come together at the right time, and uh, it was it was a great relationship, and still is, of course. Yeah, yeah. And football and Sunderland was it was a very different place um, in the early nineties. I mean, what what kind of club did you find when you when you kind of started on the board? Like everyone, you're, you're, you know, you're starstruck and you think, wow, football club. One of the, 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 the great things was that, that obviously I had time on my hands at, at, at that time. So I could basically devote full time to the football club. And, and going into the club, you know, having been successful in business, you, you expect a, a very professional outfit. And it was, it was quite the opposite. You know, it literally was just a, a, a sports club. And, <laughs> You know, I I got a bit of a shock, really, and we really had to get the thing into a more of a ship shape and start to look at it as as a business because around that time, naturally, football in general was changing. You know, we had the the advent of Sky coming along, and uh, it, the football was changing in all ways, shapes, and forms. So it was 
It was a real shock to me to find that, I wouldn't say how amateurish it was, but it, it wasn't a, a professionally run organisation. And credit to Bob, he, he'd, he was aware of that. And I think one of the, the key things was that he knew that, you know, I, I was quite happy to devote full time to uh, trying to get the club into, into some form of business shape and to, to move the thing forward. And, and that's exactly what we did. Yeah. But it's easy to forget, and I mean, especially if we've got some kind of younger listeners, that, that football was like that. I mean, if you go through, you know, the 70s and the 80s, I mean, it was run, it was just run by kind of local businessmen who ran their local clubs. And, and that was football for a long time. It, indeed it was. And th- th- they would only go into the club probably once a fortnight for a home game. And, 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 and that was it. You know, and in, what happened in between was, all right, you were left to one or two people who were in charge, but it wasn't, it, it, you know, it was very much a, a sports club as we know it in terms of any local cricket club or whatever. It, it wasn't much different to that, but, uh, it, you know, things were were changing and we knew as, as that we had to change the, the whole makeup of the football club if, if we weren't going to be left behind. And when you actually first joined the board, I don't know if this is a is a bit of an urban myth that's gone around, but was it was it true that your first investment in the club went uh, went pretty much on signing Brett Angel? Yes, indeed, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, at the time, it was uh, well, the club was desperate. We needed to get somebody in, and uh, it pro- probably wasn't one of the better signings. <laughs> yeah, but. Uh, that's that's what uh, a, a lot of my investment at the time went in, into, and yeah. uh, you know we we just needed to do something because the club was was going downhill at that time very very quickly. Well, that's it. A, a month after you're appointed to the board, you you straighten at the deep end. So Sunderland signed Brett Angel and we signed Dominic Matty on loan from Liverpool, which ends in Sunderland potentially being deducted points uh, by the FA for an administration error. That just sums up what what I was saying that. Uh, yeah. The, the the whole place was it wasn't the the, the professional outfit that that you would have ex- that I would have expected and and uh, you know the dominant Matty old saga just just summed the whole scenario up and uh, it was just another thing at the time and I remember I'm thinking goodness me what what have I done here getting involved with this um, <laughs> you, you know on the one hand you you're, you're sitting in the stands and as, as a fan and then the next minute you you've, you've got all this in front of you to sort out and uh, uh yeah there was a couple of occasions at that time i'm thinking this was a bad move john bad move <laughs> how did that play out with the fa because it was real kind of concern that that might get us relegated at the end well of indeed i think it was that it it, it it was deemed that it was a it was a genuine mistake and to be fair the club had always you know had a, an, an exemplary record with the FA trying to do things right you, you know uh, so i think to credit to the FA they, they took all that into account and you know we we weren't trying to pull a fast one or anything like that it was it was just a, a, a sad combination of circumstances so we we sort of got away with it with a, with a wrap over the over the knuckles really but by goodness it was it was uh, it was a worrying time it really yeah. was well that's it and the other big thing kind of a month it was a month after you joined as well was um we uh, removed mick books and his manager and replaced him with uh, with peter reed so well how, that's how it that was one of my yeah, that was one of my first duties. And again, that just goes back to what I said. I'm thinking, dear me, why have I suddenly got involved with all this? You know, <laughs> what, what, you know, one one week you're sitting sitting in the stands watching the watching the match as a fan, and then the next 
within a three or four weeks' time, you're right at the forefront of making massive changes. And uh, yeah, we got uh, we got Peter Reid in, and of course Peter was well, he's right, right character, you know. He was determined. He knew what he wanted, and uh, it was a big decision for us at the time. Was it was it six or seven games? I can't quite remember. Seven games, uh, I think. And it's, it was one of those situations, Chris, that, you know, do you give them a 12-month, two-year contract or do you just give them a game by game? And it's one of those, you, you, you're never going to get it right. At the end, we decided, right, we'd give them a contract at the end of the season. And uh, fortunately, for, for the football club's point of view, he, uh, he managed to keep us up. And then, of course, the... Everybody thinks, well, why didn't we get him a longer contract? And, uh, <laughs> it's you, you can you never win in situations like that. Did he take much uh, persuasion to to come to Sunderland, or was he, you know, I'll sign straight away? No, he he, he sort of signed straight away. He he referred. He, he always said that uh, you know he always uses the thing. It's a proper football club, and I, I know what he means. And he 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 kept saying that he always remembers as a very very young player. We, he came with Bolton Wanderers to Roper Park. And I think it was in the season, probably 78, when we got promoted. And uh, he remembers coming as a young player, and it was obviously a sellout at Roper. And uh, he just thought that, you know, the atmosphere and uh, was unbelievable. And in his words, it was a proper football club. And I, I don't think he ever forgot that. And I think that in itself uh, made a big difference when he got the opportunity to, to come to Sunderland. And it's funny how, how life turns out, isn't it? Yeah, I think, and he always talked about, I think, um, when we got relegated in 1990 at Main Road as well. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that was another thing. Yeah, we had uh, sort of nearly half the crowd were Sunderland fans, weren't they? Yeah. yeah. But it was a, it was a big appointment um, because it was our first managerial appointment from outside the club since since Dennis Smith in 1987 because we That's had right. Terry Butcher from within, Mark Crosby from within, uh, Mick Buxton from within. And Peter Reid was kind of someone from the outside who really kind of picked the club up by the scruff of the neck. That, that's right. And, and that, that's, you know, I was conscious at the time, that's that's what we needed. We needed somebody that to come in that, you know, Peter's track record as a, as a, as a player was, well, unparalleled. And, of course, he, he'd been very successful at, at Man City, uh, you know, re- relatively. And uh, it was... It was a it was a great move at the time, you know, that we managed to get him, and uh, the the rest is history, as they say. Yeah, well, he, he kept us in Division One, like you said, um, and it's frightening how things could have gone if we if we'd gone down. But, oh, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, 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 although you look at the situation we now find ourselves in, it was. Uh, you know, it's, it seems to be the norm now. But at that time, you know, if the, the, for, for us to go back down into into uh, the, what was the third division, in, in essence, was would have been an absolute disaster. Um, yeah. But no, he uh, he managed to to do what we wanted to do, and uh, that, that was tremendous. Although it was a bit scary those games. My goodness. Yeah, I remember the the Sheffield United and the Swindon games. Yeah. Um, but I was I was going to say actually I mean considering I mean we'll go on to what he achieved but it was arguably one of his greatest achievements at Sunderland actually keep us up that you know yes it was it was I mean he 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 brought a, a, a totally different atmosphere and a togetherness at the club you know he was he he was a larger than life character Reed he still is of course and he he just galvanised everybody at the club on and off the pitch and uh, it was absolutely tremendous it really was so what, at what point at the end of that season I mean you'd only been in a few months but at what point at the end of that season was the 
um, developments for the for the new stadium? Where was that actually at at that point? Well, at the time, uh, again, credit to Bob. Bob had always, because of his long involvement, I mean, Bob what, joined the board in the late 80s or something. Yeah. Uh, you know, he he recognised that the club needed to 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 move to a, a new stadium. And as an engineer, I, I got involved and looking at Roker Park and forgetting the, the sentiment and the happy memories that everybody has and, and me personally. You know, in reality, it was just a ramshackled, building that that wasn't fit for purpose so we knew that we had to uh, move to a new ground we looked at schemes of putting seats in at Roker Park but the sight lines and everything they just they just weren't right and uh, you know a, a move was really the only thing to do and Bob had obviously tried that in terms of trying to move to Nissan and uh so we knew that we we had to pick that up because Roker Park was uh, the capacity was going to be reduced because the regulations following Heinzel and Hillsborough were such that uh, you know we had to go to Wall Cedar and I think Roker Park would have ended off something like about thirteen fourteen thousand capacity which would have been a, a real death knell for the club so we we were on a fairly tight timescale to get things moving and fortunately at that. I think it was about ninety, about ninety five, ninety six. I think it was that the the site uh, where we currently are, Wearmouth Colliery, potentially became available, and uh, very quickly we we started to 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 work that up, and that's what happened. And uh, you, you know, in a very very short period of time, we set the wheels in motion to to move to what is now the Stadium of Light. And I remember actually just as that was starting off. I mean, I also remember even in kind of the, the pro, match day programs. You know, there was posters up. But I remember around that time there was a huge kind of from the board or from the club a huge PR campaign because it's amazing to think now. But actually, there was there was quite a few people who were opposed to moving the stadium at the time. Well, there the, the was, and and you, you can understand that. You know, wrote a part of great, you know, some great games, great memories. But you, you know, you had to look at the other side, and football regulation was changing. I always remember at Roker Park in the, the the last season. You know, we 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 had some good fixtures when we were in the prem the the, the Premier League, and uh, we we couldn't sell out because the Roker end people just you know. Times had changed. They just didn't want to stand on an open concrete terracing. And it was reflecting in society. You know, people wanted a bit more comfort in life. And the days of, you know, going into bloody awful toilet blocks and, you know, bits of bovril and pies with hard hard <laughs> bottoms, you know, more, more like missiles than, than pies. Um, you know, we, we, we had to take all that into account that he, he, the club just couldn't go on that way. It would just, it would just fade, you know, and, and you could see in football, you know, one or two other clubs that were probably moving in that direction. And we knew that, you know, we, we can't allow that for Sunderland. And uh, so, so against that backdrop, we also knew that there was this sort of view that new stadiums were soulless and there were, you would never have the atmosphere, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, certainly we put a lot of effort into saying, right, we've got to replicate the great bits of Roker, the Roker Raw, the atmosphere in the new stadium. And uh, we, we were very hands-on. I was hands-on in terms of the detailed design to keep the the the, the, the in the seating as close to the pitch as possible. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of thought and effort went into it. Also, in terms of, of transferring 
the fans from Rockwood to the stadium in terms of where they would sit and, you know, he would try to replicate the full end in the north stand and the clock stand in the southwest corner. And there, there was a lot of lot of thought and a lot of effort in into that. And uh, I, I'd like to think that that, that was quite successful in, in, in what we achieved there. I stood on the back of the full end when we left there and I got a position Right in the middle at the back <laughs> in the north stand. Yeah, yeah. So all of that good memories of sitting in picking my seat and but yeah, I mean I, I think quite a lot of people were in the agreement that um we should move. But it's amazing, like I said, to think now how many people were were, were opposed to it. But like I said, it was was that a thought at the club to have that kind of PR exercise to to really kind of almost say we can't survive without moving and we need to Yeah, yeah. And I mean we 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 knew that you know that the what there was people who didn't want to move, but you know, we wanted to have that PR and we if you remember we had a couple of porter cabins where people could go along and, and view them building the new stadium and book your new season ticket. All, all that was just to generate the enthusiasm and try people to recognise that it was a new era for the club and, you know, this was going to make a big difference to the club to be able to compete in in what was the football that was changing dramatically at that time as an industry, you know? Yeah, well, as all that was kicking off, you know, Peter Reid not only came in and saved us, but then his first season, we suddenly... Um, became a Premier League club. That must have seemed a million miles away. From a business point of view, I mean, we know now that how big the gulf is between the Premier League and the rest. But how big a leap was that 25 years ago? It was. It was still a massive leap then. And uh, but again, because of Peter's background and his contacts, you know, we managed to bring in uh, Niall Quinn, as you remember, Tony Corton, yeah. and then of course we got Shea Given in on loan from Blackburn and. Uh, I think in that promotion season, I think Shea was probably one of the, the players that made a big difference to us. And we actually tried to sign him when we got into the Premier League. The discussions were going quite quite well. And then, of course, all of a sudden, Kenny Dalgleish goes up to Newcastle. And I knew as soon as that happened, I thought, that's it, we're not going to get him. And uh, as you know, Shea Given ended off at Newcastle with a very successful career. Hurts me to say so, but there you go. Well... Yeah, I mean, during that Premier League season, the project was going on to build the stadium. But a couple of things stand out in terms of that project. The first one was the price it cost to build, which was around, you know, the £24 million mark, which is quite incredible, especially when you look at recent projects like Tottenham, which ran over budget and missed the start of the season. But the second was the innovation that went into some of the design. I mean, are those the two main aspects of the project that you're most proud of? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, being an engineer, I, I was very, very hands-on in terms of, of the design. We, we looked at other other grounds and, uh, in, you know, where, where we could learn things. And up to that time, you know, whilst there'd been developments at various football grounds, it tended to be the odd stand and uh, and that was it. And we, we had a look at Middlesbrough, credit to Steve Gibson down there. You know, Steve brought them all by moving to uh, to, to the, the Riverside and you know, we, we had a look at that and there was there was lots of things. It's easy to pick fault, but a lot of things that came out of that was that, you know, I, I felt that we, we had to get the movement of people within the stadium right, you know, so that people were not crossing over. They were in this part of the stadium, but they were seated in other parts and uh, just simple, simple organisation, things like that. And within the main stand, you know, double width corridors so that people can walk around because... It's just human nature. You're walking around on a match day and you, you see a couple of pals and you stop to chat and 
in doing that, it just stops the whole floor. So we there was a lot of lot of things that went into you know just just getting it right. And uh, what, one of the big things was that the development corporation at the time their their brief was to cleanse the land because obviously it was uh, contaminated land where the pit had been and uh, they they just kept digging down and down and down and kept coming across various structures uh, you know going way back hundreds of years because the, the uh, there'd been coal mining on that site for that period of time mm-hmm. and suddenly we 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 realized one day that here we are we've got this huge hole in the ground and uh, the great advantage of that is let's let's use that and uh, have have a natural amphitheater, and that's how the de- the radical design came about. That the f- first fifteen rows of seats are actually you know below ground level, and that had the big a number of advantages, not least of which was to uh, reduce the amount of of steel work that was required, and and therefore the cost. So so that that was pretty fundamental and it also meant that you had you know the dressing rooms and everything were below ground level so you weren't you know uh, using valuable commercial space in the main stand so there, there was lots and lots of advantages that we that uh, we incorporated into it and another simple thing was the roof we wanted to create the the right acoustics and atmosphere and uh, one of the problems you've got in Sunderland is that uh, with, with, with the pigeons and seagulls, you get a lot of droppings on the seats. And uh, that was a problem at, even at Roper Park with a few seats that we had. You know, come up to a match day, it was a cleaning operation. Again, at cost and time. So two things that we did, instead of for the design of the roof, we put the sheeting on the underside, which meant that it improved the acoustics, but it also kept the seagulls on the outside where the droppings didn't come down onto the seats. So... There was little things like that that I was very involved in. And, you know, I, I still get pleasure to this day thinking, yeah, we were right there. It was the right thing to do. And, of course, the big thing was the atmosphere. Um, you know, I think we were very successful in transferring the, the, the good old rope raw into the stadium. I've actually been so heavily involved in day-to-day tasks, as, as you've described. I mean, did you ever get an opportunity just to stop and kind of take in the enormity of, of moving your football club from its spiritual home that had so many memories into this into this new home? Not not at the time, Chris. To be fair, it was just it was it was a twenty four hour seven day a week operation because we were we'd got received special dispensation from the from the FA to remain at Roper Park for a further twelve months when uh, when Roper Park didn't totally satisfy all the then current regulations, and we knew that by the the, the start of uh, the 97-98 season that we had to be in our new stadium. Otherwise, we, you know, potentially we could have been closed down. So it was it was a real race against time. And uh, if you remember, we had, we, we had the BBC film unit, Premier Passions. And uh, I think there's, there's bits of that just show just how really, you know, things were on a, a knife edge in terms of a tight time scale. Well, I'm going to come back to that in a second. But during that year as the stadium was being built, Peter Reid was desperately trying to keep us in the Premier League. And I'm not sure, I mean, all the years I've followed Sunderland, not sure I've ever seen a year where Sunderland were linked with so many players in the transfer market as we were that year. I mean, did did you get tired of telling people that year that we were trying to sign players, but we just couldn't get them in? We couldn't get them in. And obviously money, money was tight. You know, we were 
trying to do so much, moving the stadium, trying to build the team, uh, you know, and, and with Pete's contacts, I mean, as I said earlier, we, we, you know, we got some good players in and then sadly during that season, Niall, Niall got injured. I think we lost Tony Corton as well, didn't we? For a while, and uh, it, it's easy to say, well, we had a bit of bad luck, but it's you know things could have been better. And to go to be relegated on forty points—that was the ironic thing. We managed to get to the magic forty points, but we still went down. It was a double blow because there we were getting relegated, moving into a new forty-four thousand seater stadium. <laughs> Yeah, not not, not an ideal situation. Tony Corton injury that you mentioned there. I mean, that essentially finished Tony Corton's career. It was it, it, was it did, it did, but it made a big, big difference to 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 the club at that time. You know, I think if if we hadn't had those injuries, uh, you, you know, I think we we might have got that extra few points and and been able to stay up. I think people forget as well because we were talking about the club that you found when you joined. I mean, this is only kind of what. 12 months later, I mean, because in that summer, it was the first time we broke the 1 million barrier when we signed Alex Ray. Such a leap when Peter Reid got us up that quickly. It was almost unexpected that you'd end up being in that position. Uh, absolutely. And there were so many, you know, balls and plates we had to keep spinning. In line with all this as well, of course, we were conscious that we, we had to improve our training facilities and we got the opportunity to purchase the ground, which is now where the Academy of Light is based and that was the the farm and uh, so we a lot of people don't realize we you know we're building the stadium trying to do the team all this that and the other and at that time we got the opportunity to to buy these 200 acres down at Whitburn which we did subject to planning uh, and we we just sort of parked that up at one side and thought well we, you know we can't do that at the moment but that's that's uh, that's in the bank for our next project because we knew that if we were going to develop it as a club, we we also had to have you know reasonable training facilities, you know. And when Peter first came, there was there was nothing. The lads used to get trained at change at Roper Park, jump in a load of cars, and 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 nip down to Whitburn and basically train in a glorified field. Uh, so there was a hell of a lot to do at the club at the time. So yeah, it was interesting times. Yeah, and as you said, it was all documented by BBC cameras. So with the Premier Passions, how, how did that all come about? Well, we, we, we got approached by the BBC. They, they wanted to, to do a story, uh, you know, clubs that were having to change and move to stadium. And again, it was against the backdrop of the major changes that were happening in football at the time. And they were looking at a number of clubs. So we, we threw our hat in the ring and said, right, let's, you know, yeah, we, we, we'll make a good story. And Fortunately, we, uh, we we were chosen as the the club that they would use for the, what became Premier Passions. You know, I, I, we all felt at the time that you know the club just needed that bit of boost and tell it as it is and see what we're trying to achieve. And uh, you know, it's, it's always a bit difficult. You always think something like that could backfire, but I think it was the right thing at the time. It gave us a reasonable amount of profile, not only with our own fans, but I think with football fans in general. And we knew in Certainly in Peter Reid, we had a we had a right character who came across in a tremendous way. What did you think of the final product when it came out? Did you enjoy it? I did. I thought it was very, very good. I thought the, the, the music and the thing that, you know, I still get a lump in my throat when I think about it. Um, the great opening sequence for me, and I, I still enjoy it to this day, is when the music comes on and it says, Sunland is a new city. It doesn't have a cathedral, but it does now. And then just panned <laughs> up to the stadium. And I tell you, that, that 
I think it's very, very humbling when you when you see that, and uh, it's a tremendous, absolutely tremendous, brilliant record at the time. And I'm not sure if you've seen it or not, but uh, I just wonder at this point what your thoughts are on some degree and to do a similar series on on Netflix. I mean, do you think do you think that added to the pressure of the club to get back up, or was it worth it to boost the club's profile? I think it, it's like I said before, it can it can go either way. I think it, it it's good that it keeps the the, the club in profile, and it, it's a it's a different you know football is different twenty years on and. Uh, the way that they do a film is a bit different, you know. Uh, I, I still think Premier Passions was a, was a great program. It was well balanced, and you know, I've watched the Netflix ones, and it's it's a different style, isn't it? It's a slightly different style, but it's good for the club. It's good for the club within the football community because you know other football fans throughout the country could get a bit more of an insight into Sunderland, and that that can't be a bad thing. No. Especially with a focus on some of the fans. I mean, I think that's that's the yeah, yeah. It's the same the same concept as with Premier Passions, isn't it? They, they pick out one or two fans, and you know you follow them around, and uh, yeah. But I, I always remember with Premier Passions, we we're talking about the time scale to get the stadium open. I remember one one section I was doing an interview. They they stood me in one corner of the stadium, which wasn't finished at the time, and there was I saying, "Yes, we're opening in you know X number of weeks' time," and. It was just this big gap behind me, and uh, you know. And even now, I thought, yeah, that was uh, was quite clever. That you'd think, looking at that, we've got no chance, but we managed it. We managed it. And, and amazingly, I mean, we talked about all these things going on at the same time. But the, the another thing that season, I mean, Sunderland were the the fourth uh, football club to be floated on the stock exchange uh, with the potential of pay per view football. And I imagine it made perfect sense. Well, it did. I mean, maybe shouldn't say it, but it should never have really been floated. It wasn't a business for flotation in the strict sense. What was happening at the time, there was this uh, pay-per-view thing was going to be the panacea. You know, you'd get people all around the world would be paying a fortune to watch, you know, four-far player bloody Falkirk or whatever, you know. And it, within the game, we all thought, it's, it's not going to happen. You know, there's only a, people have only got an X amount of money in the pocket. But as far as the stock exchange and the city investors, they saw this as a, as, as a you know, a real way forward that was going to transform uh, football even more than initially the sky, the sky did. So we, we took the opportunity, given that, you know, at that time we had a good story, the stadium was coming on stream, blah, blah, blah. And even referring to Premier Passions, it, it helped us a little bit in terms of spreading the, the story. So we thought, right, this is an opportunity to raise to raise money that would allow us to build the stadium to a, a standard that we would like, rather than just a tin shed. And we, from the decision to float the business, to actually floating on the stock market was about barely four months, which in business terms was quite a bit of a record. But we knew, again, we had a tight time scale because we always felt that this pay-per-view thing is it's not going to last, you know. So we had to get the get it done in, in sharp time, and we managed to do that, and uh, we, we raised quite a bit of money, and that all went into developing the club players and, more importantly, the stadium at the time to to fit it out to that little bit better quality and standard 
that, that we wanted. You know, we were the fourth, but actually by the end of, I think it was by the end of 97, there were about 18 clubs that had done the same thing. Yeah, you, you know, it was the right thing to do at the right time. And as I said, give us a little bit of cash to, to do things and, and, and have the quality of stadium that, that we've got, you know. Just a simple thing that we did with a bit of extra cash was we were the first stadium to have a concert quality sound system. And, mm. and that was something that... You know, we wanted to do from day one and to, to create the atmosphere. And uh, that certainly, certainly worked right from day one, having that, that quality sound system. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's struggling a bit now, I think, <laughs> after all these years. But uh, I don't think it's ever been updated. No, well, that's right. That's right. We come to the, the end of that season. Um, and when it came to that last league game at Roger against Everton, I mean, that day you must have experienced every emotion it's possible to go through. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was sad and, you know, there was, a, there was a lot of tears around the place, you know, that, that uh, people people knew, you know, that that was it. And uh, it was, yeah, it was, uh, was, it was a strange, strange occasion, you know. And uh, we took the opportunity, uh, we, we knew that, in terms of the new stadium, we wanted the sports bar with bits of memorabilia to take, you know, various signs and that. I'm not sure you've been in the sports bar. You can see it. It hasn't changed. So we, we managed to, you know, I, I thought that what's going to happen here is the fans are going to take half a rope of park home with them. So I thought, well, we, we better <laughs> we better get some of this stuff out now. And uh, that's what we did. And if you recall the last home game, there was a lot of the signage was just paper signage for the just for that occasion. And uh, that's what was done. It was the right thing to do. And we we've got the they've got the memorabilia in 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 the sports bar. It was a brilliant day that that day against Everton. I mean, everything just came together to make the kind of perfect send off with models free kick and winning three 0 and it was yeah. just a just a great day. Yeah. yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, it was a, an, an end to what was it ninety eight years at Rockwell Park. Yeah, and obviously your speech at the you know in Reedy's bar I think afterwards is uh, was recorded. You know, to, to kind of finish everything off. Yeah, yeah, I, I can't quite remember it, but yeah, I remember. Yeah, Reedy's Reed, <laughs> bar. Yeah, that was uh, that was quite an atmosphere in there. But we end up we end up getting relegated, unfortunately, and, and we're moving into the new stadium as a Division One club, as it was then. And I remember you having to make kind of trip to to London to talk to investors in in Premier Passions. But how did that relegation hit the plans that the board had? And were you concerned about attendances the following season in that new stadium? Well, that, that was the big concern. Whether uh, you know we could we could maintain the the or the potential of the attendances that we wanted to, to make sure we got the revenue in. Fortunately, you, you know we we had the new stadium and we had the new stadium effect. And there's no doubt about it that that was uh, you know a massive influence on and off the pitch. You know, and I think that probably would have worked whatever whatever league we were in. But it was a bit scary at the time moving into a brand new stadium and you'd just been relegated. But I think credit to the fans, you know, they knew that, you know, the relegation, we'd just missed out 40 points. You know, we were still seeing some reasonable football under the circumstances. Reedy was still as buoyant as ever. So I think there was still a reasonably good feel around the place that uh, that, that helped. And a couple of games into the new new stadium, I think people just thought, wow, this is it. And it, it just went from there, really. first job of the summer was to name the, the new stadium, which you did at midnight on Tuesday, the 29th of July, 1997. Yeah. And we announced that it was named as the, the Stadium of Light. Was it the aim from the beginning to give it a unique name rather than go down the more kind of traditional route? 
Yeah, absolutely. We, you know, there was all the new new Roker Park and all this sort of stuff. But we felt again against the backdrop that you know football was changing. It was becoming very much commercial and sponsorship opportunities, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We just wanted a, a, a name that a name that was for the the twenty first century. There was a lot of a uh, lot of conflict in, with with that. I remember going out and announcing the name, and by goodness, I got I got some flack that night at midnight. I think it was recorded on Premier Passions. You know, I think initially a lot of the fans didn't like it, but uh, it's like a lot of things. I think it was proved to be the the, the right thing, and it was chosen because of the the the, the background of the site and the mining connections, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it was it's it's a great name, and people know the Stadium of Light. It's uh, you know, it's, it's tremendous, tremendous. It was the right thing to do. Were you surprised by some of that reaction? Uh, a, a little bit, a little bit. You know, I think uh, at the time you you, you think you're, you're doing the right thing, but then you tend to think, well, maybe we haven't got it right. But uh, but time proved that it was, it was the right the right thing to do. And something else that gets forgotten about around this time was changing um, the club crest, the badge. Yeah. Yeah, I know a lot of people were attached to the to the old one, so that that was also a big move at the time. It was again, we felt you know this this was a sort of once in a hundred year change within the club. You move the new stadium, you know the football's changing, and you you really got to sort of draw a line and and move forward in a in in a different more positive manner. And uh, you know the, the the old badge hadn't been around that long you know if you look over the history of Sunderland unlike some football clubs that have had near as damn at the same badge for a hundred years would makes it a bit sacrosanct as it were uh you know Sunderland had, had various things over the years and what one of the things with the with the old badges you say was with, with the ship on that you know you, you used to get press coverage if we had a run of bad results you'd get the the cartoon as shown the ship was sinking you know that wasn't that wasn't the best but we just felt we wanted a, a a new badge to reflect the new era, and, and and there was a lot of effort went into it as to what we should use the coat of arms of Sunderland, and you've got the pension monument there, the pit wheel, and it was all brought together, you know, by professionals to come up with the with the the, the badge as as currently is. And the following day after you announced that name, we officially opened against Ajax. But yeah. uh, just how close did it get where to a point where the stadium? wasn't ready for that grand opener. It wasn't ready. I mean, we, we had the, the, the health and safety uh, committee, which involves the police, the ambulance, the local authority, you know, everybody. And I remember being in the meeting and uh, the decision was basically that there was such a euphoria around the city with the fans and everything that the decision was taken that there would it would be potentially cause more problems if the match had been cancelled as opposed to it going ahead. And uh, that was the decision because it, it wasn't ready. If you recall, the outside, we were just laying bits of tarmac down on top of earth and what have you just to get it open. And, uh, you know, it was credit to everybody that, that, that we managed to we managed to do that. And uh, it was... Yeah, it was scary. I mean, we, you know, the idea that we would be selling selling liquor throughout the ground was something novel for for all fans. And uh, I think we got the license at about four o'clock in the afternoon of the game. <laughs> and uh, the, the 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 safety certificate was given about the same time as well. So it was it was really really scary. And uh, I remember 
the, the, the brewery at the time, because in the early days, everybody wanted to have a beer in the stadium. We were selling, you know, tens of thousands of pints, would you believe? And I remember the guy, I, I was the licensee for a few weeks. And the guy said to me, he said, do you realize, John, you're the, the, the licensee of one of the biggest pubs in the north of England? I said, have you ever pulled a pint? I said, no, but I'll stand at the other side a few times. He says, well, um, you know, talk about things weren't finished. We Just before the start of the game, I, I was running around here, there and everywhere, you know, I was in the right state trying to make sure everything was okay. And I got a message that there was a leak in the, the home dressing room. And uh, what what it was was this this yellow liquid was falling down into the into the dressing room, and that is because the dressing rooms were underground. Uh, obviously, all the services and what have you were like at ground level, but in the roof of the of the dressing room, if you understand. And at first, we thought, well, it was was obviously uh, drainage from the toilets, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, right? But some somebody plucked up enough courage to check it out. And it turned out it was it was actually lager. It was one of the big <laughs> pipes that were going through to the bar. And I always remember to show what show what a character that Peter Reed was. I said, I went down, I said, sorry about the, the hassle, Peter. And he goes, he said, no, no problem at all. I can't swear, but you know how you can imagine what he said. He said, draft, he said, draft lager in the home dressing room. He says, fantastic. <laughs> But on the night, it was chaos. And, of course, we the seats were numbered wrong, as you probably know. Absolutely amazing. I mean, we're sticking numbers and on the seats at, you know, literally an hour, two hours before the game. But, uh, we, we got there. We got there. Well, when it finally did go ahead and the, the game was on, when you were, when you finally got a chance to sit down, if that actually happened, I mean, how did you feel to finally see the stadium full of fans, players on the pitch? That must have been a... a, a you know, pretty amazing moment. Oh, it was. I mean, it was just, you know, it was a combination of 12, 18 months of hard work and it made you feel very proud and everybody at the club was so proud. You know, people were just sort of in awe that they'd been involved. I mean, everybody pulled together, you know. It was very, very difficult because even, you know, for stewards, first time that, you know, people just didn't walk into a stand and just stand where they wanted. They had to be, you know, row 12, seat 23. And it was it was just a total, total culture change for, for everybody. And, uh, you know, I, I think everybody, big sigh of relief, big sigh of relief that we got there within the, within the timescales. I don't think I'll ever forget walking in and seeing that ball on the pitch for the first time for that Ajax game. I think that moment will always stay with me. And at the time, it was hard to believe that I'd be going there every other week <laughs> to watch Sunderland after so long at Roger Park. Yeah, and, yeah. I mean, obviously, you looked at every single detail. I mean, you've talked about some of the detail you looked into, but is there anything now, kind of, you know, 20-odd years later, that you'd look back and you'd do any kind of differently if you could go back and do it all again? Not to be fair, I think we, you know, by hook or by crook, we, we, we got it right. I think one of the things that probably changed, and it wasn't, it was just a, a things in general within football, as you know, we put in 54 private boxes within the stadium. And in the in the late 90s, the, that, that everybody wanted their own private box and this, that and the other. And uh, with hindsight, things have changed. Probably we, you know, a, a few less private boxes and maybe a, a couple of more corporate facilities with a view on, on the pitch might have been a bit more appropriate these days. But um, but that was, that's probably all. 
I mean, everything else was ideal. You know, the sight lines. We we were in a unique position where we 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 put the pitch down slightly bigger than Roper Park. We wanted it to FIFA FIFA standard, and then we just built the the the, the stands out to the required capacity and stopped. You know, we weren't confined to a a, a, a given footprint, and that's why you know wherever you are in the stadium, you've you've got a bloody good view. It was amazing that Irish game, and then to get into that first season at the, the Man City game was it was a huge night. And but actually, that the start of that first season, um, we're now a new home, and we end up losing five of the first ten league games, and found ourselves twelfth in November. So I mean, was I mean that must have been a blow, obviously moving into the new home. And was there ever any discussion on on changing the manager at that point, or did you? No, just no, no. I mean the atmosphere it was you know it was, it was all new for everybody you could see Pete Pete knew he wanted to bring different players in and things were changing and you know we, we, we knew it wasn't going to be always smooth running and we just we just had to stick with it and uh, things things started to turn around and that was it well it did I mean we lost we lost kind of one in 36 and just narrowly missed out you know on 90 points which was which was unbelievable and yeah. uh we ended up day at Wembley, um, which, even though it was an incredible season, it was still a huge blow at the at the end at, at oh, Wembley. It was, it was. But before Wembley, I, I think one of the things where I took the greatest satisfaction was that the Sheffield United home game, the atmosphere that night, I, I just thought, we've got this stadium right. We've done, yeah. we've achieved what we wanted. And to me, I, I, I don't think we've, I, I don't think we've enjoyed that ever since, actually. But that night against Sheffield United, that stadium was absolutely buzzing. And I just thought, we've arrived. You know, Roka Park, God bless it, it's history. This is the stadium of light. And that's fantastic, fantastic. And then, as you say, we, we, we went to Wembley. But, uh, God. Well, that Sheffield United uh, game that night, I mean, a podcast we did with uh, Jody Craddock, and we talked about that. Craddock said that was his best atmosphere you've ever played in in his career I mean it just all came together the scenario the fog um, the game itself oh it was it was it was awesome awesome it really was it was an awesome occasion when people describe electric atmospheres I mean that night was probably the closest I'll ever get to describing something like that it was absolutely amazing absolutely amazing yeah but I mean that, that playoff was disappointed but it looks like you know a year later break all sorts of records um, and win the first division title with over 100 points and again, another another moment where you see us lift our first trophy at that new stadium or back in the Premier League, and another huge moment. That particular season, I mean, it was just you know the, you you would be going to a, going to a match and you wouldn't be thinking, well, are we going to win today? It was just you know how many are we going to win by, and how many is Kevin Phillips or Niall Quinn going to score? I mean, it was just so exciting football and entertainment the atmosphere and you know the, the whole the whole city the whole area was just buzzing you know it was just happy happy days tremendous yeah that that season i remember um pretty much every game we're going to the going to the buggies and just saying right are we going to win three nil or four nil today is it going to be phillips or quinn who scores first yeah that's right that was that was it that was it, and uh, you, you know, and and it was just just amazing. It really was. You you, you look back, and uh, you know, like a lot of these things, you probably don't realise how good it was at the time. It's not until you till re, you reflect and think, wow, that was halcyon days, halcyon days. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we get promoted to the Premier League, and again, 
you know, we talk about that that golf, but the standard of player and the price tag starting to ramp up to the next level. We we sign players like uh, Steve Bold, who's a huge, huge kind of yeah. name and a brilliant yeah. player, and Stefan Schwartz, who breaks our transfer record by some distance. I mean, that must have brought home to you the progress that you'd made in what? I mean, you're talking kind of four years, even maybe four, even less. Four than years, that. absolutely. I mean, you know the. Uh, and this was another thing that vindicated the move from Roca that you know players of that quality wouldn't would not have come to Sunderland if we'd still been at Roca Park you know and again everything that had happened at the stadium alike whether it was the Premier Passions programme or or, or or the the games that had featured there all then made the 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 club uh, you know put the club in the spotlight and and made it attractive where we could we could attract players of that caliber. And, uh, you know, that needed to be done. Otherwise, we would never have, you know, somebody like Stefan Schwartz would not, would, would never have come to Sunderland. You know, Claudio Reyna was another one, you know, uh, just amazing. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, I mean, uh, it kind of continues as well, because in that first season in the Premier League, um, at the Stadium of Light, we're third in the Premier League after a 2-0 home win against Southampton on the 18th of December. Um, but then we don't win for another 11 games and end up finishing seventh. So narrowly missing out on Europe. I mean, it was a fantastic. It was a fantastic achievement and a great year with Phillips. He got the Premier League Golden Boot and the European Golden Shoe. But even though on paper fantastic achievement, finishing seventh, brilliant. Was there that little bit of frustration that we didn't kick on? <laughs> well, you, you, at the time, you, you know, you, you do as much as you can. You know, at the end of the day, just, you've only got a certain amount of money and you've got to try and balance things out. Yeah, it would have been nice to get other players in, and but you know, it it it, it just didn't happen. It just we had a little bit of a bad run, as I say, at Christmas time we could have gone second, I believe. I think we played Man United, didn't we? On was it Boxing Day or something? You know, you you know for a fact in football you just can't keep going on and on and on. And uh, yeah, it was disappointing, but the fact that we finished seventh was unbelievable. You know, given where we'd come from, and as you rightly say, in such a short period of time. I mean, with Phillips doing all of that, was the kind of phone off the hook in case we got any inquiries? I mean, did anything? Well, Philip Phillips was starting to, uh, you know, catch the eye of everybody. And then when he got the golden boot, I mean, to think four or five years prior that a Sunderland goal scorer would get the golden boot of Europe, you know, you, people would just would have just laughed at you, wouldn't they? Hey, just laughed at you. He's still the only English player that's ever got that. Yeah, that's right. You know, it was just just halcyon days, halcyon days. But you know? considering the price we got him for as well, it was less than half a million. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got him for that. It was un- unbelievable. A, a great guy as well, Kevin. I mean, he was a real, true, true professional. True professional. He actually, he cost me personally thirty thousand pound. Would you believe? <laughs> because I was in a car showroom at the beginning of that season, and he was in with his wife, and we were. Uh, he was looking at a car, and I, said, and I forget how the conversation went. And he, he just said, "No, I, I, I can't afford that car, and what have it." Uh, somebody said, uh, "Well, if, if if he scores thirty goals this season, you know, it'll be worth it." Stupidly, I said, "If he scores thirty goals this season, I'll buy that car." And of course, he did. And if you look at the last game when he scored against West Ham, yeah. he obviously celebrates. There's a little bit of a film. He celebrates, walks back to the centre spot looks up to the director's box, holds his hands up like a steering wheel and turns his hands. He's looking at me. And uh, at the time, I mean, he was on a good contract and I said, uh, I'm not going to buy the car, but I'll honour me, honor me statement. And sadly, his father had just, just died at the time. 
so that that money went to a donation to the Heart Foundation, which was well worth it. But yeah, that was me in in August saying, yeah, thirty thousand pound, I'll buy you that car. Thirty goals. So yeah, thousand well, pound a goal. Worth every penny. It was. It was. It was great. Absolutely great. Then the following season, we go on to do a repeat performance. So. At this, uh, the second season in Premier League was second at the end of January, and we finished seventh again. Um, yeah. And it's another strange one because on paper, another fantastic achievement, but we miss out on those European places for a second year after going so well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I imagine those two year, two years are obviously a huge sense of pride, but again, that element of frustration at the same time. Yeah, yeah, it was, and uh, you know, we we were looking to try and get players in. Obviously, we you know a few few bits of injuries and, and and stuff like that, which you'd expect. But we just we just couldn't didn't seem to be able to to to, to get the right player in. And you know, football again was changing at that stage. There was a lot of foreign players coming in, and uh, it was difficult. And sadly, things things you know didn't didn't quite go as we we would have liked. You mentioned that kind of on the on the recruitment side then, but during that time or, or kind of any time really while you're at the club, were there any signings that, you know, the ones that got away where you think, oh, I wish I'd been able to get those over the line and bring in the Sunderland? Well, there, there, there was there was one or two, but, you, you know, you can't really say if we'd got, you know, such and such a player it would have made the difference. But uh, we still got one or two players in and it just... It just didn't. It maybe just didn't happen. I think the the euphoria trying to keep everything going just started to started to wane a little bit. And uh, you know, sadly that the the following season, as you know, we we we, we absolutely struggled. But I mean, it's an obvious statement that those first four years at, at the stadium light would be kind of your favourite time. Or yeah, I mean, I've, I you know I've, I've been going now what, six, 60 years. Would you believe? Sounds awful, lad. But yeah, sixty years and. You know, people talk about 1973, but it was what six, seven, eight games. You know, those three or four years around the millennium, in in my opinion, were by far the the best times that I've experienced in in 60 years that I've watched Sunderland. There's no doubt about it. I mean, it was just it was just great. And sadly, we probably didn't appreciate it as much at the time. We just expected it. Those are the best times. For me as a Sunderland supporter, but um, it's funny you, you just think you just think everyone everything's going to keep getting better, and you don't expect it when it come when it comes to a halt. No, no, unfortunately, yeah, you know things didn't didn't work out with uh, with, with with Peter. It just uh, it, you know things started to slip a little bit, and that was it. After giving him so much back in kind of previously and letting him kind of you know obviously made the signings here, he thought we needed to bring in. I mean, it's probably difficult because you went through those good times, but. Do you think now, looking back, that he was allowed too much leeway in terms of some of the recruitment towards the end? Well, yeah, yeah, you can you can look at that. Who knows? You know, it's easy with hindsight, you know. And on on, on the other extreme, you could say, well, when when we departed company in what was it October two thousand and two? I think it was. Yeah. You know, should should we have stuck with him? Would it have made a difference? You know, it's 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 easy to look back in what if and but. What happened happened, Chris, and uh, you know it was it was a sad day when we parted company. There's no doubt about it because we'd had some some great times, you know, on on and off the pitch. And you know, Pete, Pete to his credit, galvanised the club at, at at a time, you know, going back as we've just discussed seven games, we could, the club could have gone into oblivion. It must have been difficult, but I mean, did it end up being a, a kind of a, a mutual conversation, or, or did it end up a conversation where you? 
you just have to come out and say we're letting you go. Oh, it was it was a mutual conversation. I think Pete uh, Pete realised himself that you know it's like everything in football. It's you know other than the, the absolute exception, you, you know there's a, there's a shelf life for for a, for a manager and uh, as indeed there is for a player. And I think you know Pete that uh, you know he he'd done a great job during his time and think things were changing again. There was changes within football and uh, things needed to change. We went then and brought in Howard Wilkinson. So was there a theory behind that? I mean, to try and you know, Howard Wilkinson to recreate what he'd done at Leeds, but that was you know, you know, 12 years earlier or something like that. That was the concept, but my goodness, that wasn't wasn't the best of uh, appointments, That I have to say. It was a bloody disaster. It was, uh, yeah. Yeah. It, was it, it even surpassed Brett Angel, that one, I think. Um <laughs> He was he was a different character. Was was you know it just didn't it just didn't happen. It just didn't happen. I mean, at the end of the day, you know the the, the players that we had there was with the best will in the world. It was going to be difficult with a group of players that we had. And Howard had you know different style, totally different style of Peter Reid, and uh, it was it just didn't work out. And hence we had to make another decision. Shortly, shortly after that, he was only in what about six, seven months. Mick McCarthy was a was appointed. I mean, yeah, I, I imagine he was in the frame in the in the original kind of recruitment process. I mean, was it just a straight? You know, he, he was one man. One. Well, you know, Mick Mick was in the out. original thing, yeah, but at that time he was still very much sort of flying with with uh, Ireland, you know. But he was available when when and actually when we got him on board, and uh, I think given the circumstances, it was a it was a bloody good appointment, you know. We had a couple of reasonable seasons with uh, with with Mick. And I just want to um, kind of go back slightly a little bit, but at this time you were heavily involved in the building of the academy that opened in in 2001, I think. And I think Bob Murray said previously that you were essentially the point man on that project and it it was a case of trying to take the best parts from all the top facilities in Europe. But, I mean, can you you summarise some of the level of planning that that went into building the academy? Yeah. I mean, the the thought, as as I said before, was that we, you know, we we had the stadium. We knew that we we, we had to do something in terms of of uh, the, the training and medical facilities. Again, uh, you know, if you're going to attract top class players, they 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 want the, the the facilities, not only the ground to play in, but also the support. And we knew that we had to. You know, we, we needed a new training facility, academy, um, not only to develop uh, new, uh, you know, y- young players. We had to have the facilities to satisfy the FA, you know, academy structure and recognition. And uh, just digressing, if you remember, we in, in the short term, we took over what was the old ice rink at Crow Tree Centre. And uh, we put some uh, artificial turf down in there just to give us the recognition that we could hold an academy status whilst we built the new academy. Very similar scenario to what we did when we were doing the, the stadium. So, yeah, the, the, the guys, the, the young players, trained in what was the Crow Tree Ice Centre for a, for a while. But, yeah, the, the, the academy, we as I said earlier, we, we purchased the, the land some years prior to that. We had to draw up the, the design and, uh, uh, you know, not only for the pitches, but more importantly for the building itself. And we, we went... And visited as many facilities as, as we could. Um, went out to Bayern Munich and tried to pick everybody's brains on 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 that. We had a great relationship with with, with Arsenal, and I remember when uh, David Dean came 
to the stadium of light for the first time, I think they, they were so, him and Danny Frisman were blown away so much with what we'd achieved. I think that was probably the impetus for them to realise they had to move away from Highbury. And uh, I remember David saying to me, can, can I uh, send some of my guys up to have a look at the stadium? And I said, yeah, no problem at all. There's one or two people came up and I'm, I'm thinking they would just have a look around, but they were actually, you know, measuring up, you know, two metres ten and all that. So when it came to the academy, uh, they they had just opened their new facility just inside the M25. And of course, Arsene Wenger was the manager and he'd had a lot of input in into their facility, you know, given that I think we all recognised at the time the French were way ahead in terms of the sports science aspect. So I thought, right, the opportunity here is let's go down to Arsenal. And that's what we did. So I ended off, I took my tape down to Arsenal and I did the two metres, whatever it was. <laughs> so we, we picked a lot of the brains and uh, with the changes of managers that were going on and a bit, you know, I had to do that. I would do that myself with, with a couple of our physios. And, you know, we were quite radical in terms of having the hydrotherapy pools in there and everything else. So that's how the design came about. Uh, the biggest problem for us was for getting the right planning consent. And uh, because it's in South Tyneside, it wasn't in Sunderland. So we had a, 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 a long drawn out affair. We went to a public inquiry and it was held in South Shields Town Hall. And uh, I was in this witness box one afternoon, all all afternoon. And for about an hour and a half the following morning, you know, I thought I'd been put on trial for murder rather than trying to go in for a plan of an academy. And, you know, it's things like that that I, I think a lot of you a lot of the fans don't realise what goes on behind the scenes, you know. We wanted to get an indoor facility, but that was thrown out and we were compromising. And as, as you probably know, a bit like the stadium, the majority of the building at the academy is, is it, it's not below ground. It's just, it's, it appears to be below ground because we moved a lot of the, the earthworks around it. So it uh, from the road, it's a much smaller than it actually is. But the majority of the money went into the pitches, you know, you, you don't see it. The drainage and the irrigation and the, the muck shift itself was it was a massive, massive job. But again, at the end of the day, we've, you know, the club has got a, a world-class training and medical facility there to, to match the world-class stadium. I think, you know, Bob and I take pride that that's, that's our legacy at the club, full stop. You must have been immensely proud watching two of its products take England to a World Cup semi-final a couple of years back. Absolutely, absolutely. It's uh, you know that again. That would never have happened if uh, if we hadn't had the facilities that we have. And uh, you know, there's 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 a lot of a lot a lot of good academy people come come through that system now. You know, right? They might not have made it right to the top, but there's some good players. It it just again demonstrates it was it was the right thing to do. It's just a shame those two lads aren't still playing for Sunderland, but um, that's a different story. And yeah, just getting back to to Mick McCarthy. So he. he took us um, a couple of years to get us back to the, the Premier League, um, which was kind of on a budget. He made some fantastic signings. Uh, but financially, the club's in a very different place at this point. Was it an impossible task to try and support Mick McCarthy when he got us back up? Well, it was because football is changing. And, uh, you, you know, we just, the, 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 just the cash, the cash wasn't, wasn't available. We'd had a, you know, a, a couple of disappointment times and it was still, you know, the, the crowds were still tremendous, but you know, the, 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 the real feel good factor was starting to wane a little bit. And, uh, you know, a bit like a manager, a bit like a player, you know, but Bob and I just felt, well, we've we, we've done our bit 
it's probably time to you know for somebody else to pick up the reins here. Yeah, I was. I mean, I was going to ask that um, because there were big protests during that season in around the March time as we were kind of relegated quite early. But that must have hurt a bit. I know Bob Murray. I think he'd been there quite a bit longer than than you had. Was ready to move on. Were you in the same place or? I, 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 I think so. I think so because you, you you've got to be you, you know you you have a you have a sell by date. Bob and I naturally talked, and I just felt that did my bit. I did as much as I could, and you know the the things were changing, and and it was it was time for it was time for a change. You know you've you've got to accept that, and you know you you know that the fans when when things are going bad, my goodness, you know about it. and. Uh, it's, it was difficult. It's difficult. And because at the end of the day, although you're chief exec or direct or whatever, you're still a lifelong fan of the club. And it, it hurts from two aspects, you know. I had big signs put up on, it, on, on my driveway gates and what have you, which hurts a little bit, you know, if fans putting them up and I'm thinking, well, hang on, I'm, I'm, I'm hurting like you guys, you know. All right, I did my best. Maybe it wasn't good enough, but there we go. But you accept that. You accept that. Yeah, I mean, on the, the financial side around that time, just, I mean, how bad did things get at that stage? Well, it was just that the, the, we just didn't have the finance to be able to, to, to bring players in of the of, of the quality that uh, that was probably needed to you know to to either stay in the Premier League or, or get back into the Premier League and and that's why change was necessary and uh, that's why we we looked around for potentially uh, you know for somebody to come in because the reports coming out was that it was like getting close to looking like possible administration I mean was was that no, ever- it- it, it it wasn't it wasn't getting that at all. No, it would it would never have got as bad as that. It was just that you know that the financially we we weren't in a position to to be able to compete anymore. That that was the, the scenario, you know. Well, now Quinn and the Drummerville Group came along. I mean, were those negotiations quite simple and straightforward, or was it? Yeah, they, they, they were. I mean, we looked we looked around and you know to see who who may or may not be interested, and the, the, you know there, there wasn't there wasn't a lot of interest, and it was was a bit out of the blue. I, I was talking to Niall, and uh, when we were going through a sticky patch, and he actually said, "Well, is there any way I can help?" And I think Niall was thinking more, you know, turn up on a match day and walk into the middle and wave to the fans. <laughs> uh, we, we said, well, yeah, you can. Do you want to buy the club? <laughs> and uh, at, at that time, the Irish economy was doing very, very well, and that's how he he came up with the with the Drummerville Consortium. And uh, it was a, a bit of a strange deal because you know we, we were acting on both sides really as the seller and the in the in the purchaser to make the deal happen because we knew that was the that was the right thing for Sunderland. The big concern for Bob and I was that it was the first time in the the club's what hundred and whatever it was years history that there would be non Sunderland Sunderland supporting people in charge of the club, yeah. and uh, you know we, we see that all over in football now. It probably doesn't matter, but to us at the time it was uh, that was our big concern. You know, we, uh, that was that was the thing, but it happened, and uh, you know there was a few changes since. Well, actually, I mean Bob Murray spoke to us on this subject, and. Uh... I think one of his uh, kind of disappointments as it was passed on to Nal Quinn was that Nal Quinn wasn't at the club for as long as I think Bob Murray might have expected him to, to be. And then kind of... Yeah, I mean, uh, I think one of the things was that the, the, the consortium, they they took a bit of a hammering financially, I think, when uh, 
2000 and what was it 2008 you know the financial crisis the, the Irish economy suffered really badly so I think these guys found themselves in in a in a, a similar scenario that they just didn't have the cash to keep things going and that's when uh, Niall rightly or wrongly managed to get Ellis Short on board and uh, and Niall wasn't you know he wasn't as hands-on as uh, as maybe we, we we would have liked but he was the right choice for us because we we knew we wanted somebody that you know un- understood the club and the the mentality of the people in the area you know because I always find that a bit difficult that you see people come into a club and directors of a of a club and other than owning the club the, the, you know they've never had an affiliation to the club it just seems a bit strange to me but th- there you go well short I mean what what are your feelings about that his tenure because you can't accuse him of not putting his hand in his pocket. No, no, no. I think uh, you know it's 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 probably you know I'm in no position to comment about what Ellis did or didn't do. But he, he you know, on on paper it was brilliant. He, he you know he had the financial resource. He put a lot a lot of money into it. He was obviously uh, you know he had lots of business interests and he was a busy guy. And I think he he obviously didn't have the time to spend at the club that probably it, it needed and he was relying on other people and I think other people probably let him down badly you know I mean we we seem to be signed more players than enough them at one stage they must have run out of pegs I think in the dressing room you know there's so many players there was a lot of money was wasted you know when when you think of how much was spent and what the club had to show for it it was you know, all right, I wasn't involved at the forefront, but just seeing it one step removed, I just thought, wow, you know, seemed to have been a, a lot of money was wasted. And uh, I think at the end of the day, I think, you know, Ellis saw that and, uh, you know, it must have been very disappointing for him because he spent a hell of a lot of money. A lot of managers as well. Which cost well, that's it. That was, that was probably a, a, another thing, but I would think that was probably more to do with his... His advisors than than him personally, you know. He clearly came to the games as much as he could, but I would have thought he didn't. He, he didn't have that sort of day to day, week to week, hands-on control that probably was needed. Yeah, and and kind of moving on again. What what do you see when when you look at the club now? Oh, sad, very very sad. I mean. Uh, you know, you look at the stadium. I mean, all right, we've had with you know, just shows the the crowds that we're getting in. You know, I still call it the third division. It's just, it's just amazing, absolutely amazing. And uh, but you know, sadly, the the what we did in terms of the stadium, the academy, you know, with all that infrastructure and uh, that that was all built for the Premier League. And you know, it it must it's it's going to cost a lot to keep things going. And uh, you know, we just hope. We've really got to get try and get out of this league because uh, it's the last last year of the Premiership parachute. And uh, you know, you just look at the stadium; it was built for the Premier League. You, you know, you you can't you can't cordon the South Stand off or whatever. It costs the same to run whether there's five thousand in there or fifty thousand. And th- these are the stark financial realities of the situation. You know. You know, looking at today's um, kind of situation, I mean, we've just gone through, back through some fantastic times, huge transformation, huge change, all that we've discussed. I mean, looking back now, how do you assess as a whole your your time with the club? Well, I can look, I can look back, uh, you know, with, with with pride. It was a little bit disappointing in the end, and you often think, you know, two big things should 
should we have got out earlier? Maybe if when we were flying higher, would somebody else have come in and took it to the next level? Should we have stuck with Peter Reid in 2002, even though we had a really bad start? You, you look at those things, but at the end of the day, you know, it's uh, the, the, the club is still around. It's still a force within football. It's got a brilliant stadium. It's got an academy. Whereas on the other hand, we could have still been a good old rope apart and the club could have been sunk into oblivion. So, you know, you've got to look back. There's, there's different ways of, of looking at things. One of my, even my greatest, well, not regrets, but the things that I, I, I've, I, I still hope I'm around. It was always my desire that I would love to see a European football at the Stadium of Light. And uh, that's something at the back of my mind I've always thought, well, Great, one of those fantastic midweek games. The crowd, you know, Sheffield United game revisited. Um, it hasn't happened as yet. One of my biggest disappointments as as vice chairman was when we got beat at, against Millwall in the semi final of the cup. That would have put us in. Yeah, that would have put us in there. Yeah, because we we knew before the game, you know, we were going to be playing Man United. They they would won the title, blah blah blah, and we just had to beat Millwall, and we were in Europe. We could have got hammered, whatever at Wembley. It didn't matter. But it's that that was terrible disappointment for me. I was really to me it was the next kick on. You know the stadium was built with that in mind. You know we'd we'd hosted a couple of England games because we had the the facilities there for to match FIFA's requirements. Not only the dressing rooms, but the the, the referees areas, the drug testing areas, everything. The stadium is way ahead of a lot of others. And uh, sadly, to date, we've never had European football. But like most Sunderland fans, I'm I'm optimistic that that, that day will happen. I just hope I'm around. We have to be optimistic, don't we? Yeah. Can I close now? Do you think the likes of yourself, characters like likes yourself and Bob Murray, <clears throat> are something that? we won't see in the game now, especially at the top level in the Premier League. It's highly unlikely, isn't it? You know, uh, you, you, you know, you're moving out of, it's not just the successful local businessmen. It's gone, you know, gone beyond millionaires. It's into billionaires. It's even into, even into countries, you know, where you get the likes of Man City and that. And uh, it's, it's, it's highly unlikely. And, uh, you know, for a, a club like Sunderland, it's always going to be difficult because we're not in, you know, a massive centre of population. We're not in London. We're not in Manchester, and it's always been, a, you know, always been difficult in this part of the world. But we li- we live in hope. There's no reason we've got the facilities. You just need somebody to come in and energise things. And you know, once you get on a roll, it's amazing what can be achieved as as we've proved. Yeah. You know. Yeah. On a on a final note, when we spoke to to Bob Murray, there was uh, talk of him. Maybe writing a book about his time at Sunderland is—is is that thought ever crossed your mind? No, it hasn't. No, it hasn't. Yeah. Uh, I know Bob. Bob's busy with his book, and I'm—I'll uh, be the first one with interest to be able to read it. But uh, yeah. yeah, no, that—that—that that, that hasn't uh, hasn't crossed my. You know, I've got some got some great memories, and uh, you know, happy times, happy times. It's just sad that we find the the, the club where it is at the moment, and. Although I still go to all the games, it's uh, you know it's it's just not the same, not the same. Yeah. Just just got to get back up there, and the place will take off again. Things are looking a little bit sad. The 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 stadium could do a little bit of spruce up. You know, it's probably only I can can see that. But uh, you know, I look around and think, oh, you know, come on, it's uh, it's there's a little bit of deterioration here, there, and it's 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 not good. 
it's not good. It's been absolutely fascinating to, to speak to you today. It's, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to get the chance. Indeed. Thank you very much, Chris. I've really enjoyed it and the privilege. And it's nice to nice to get the opportunity to tell the story because I know what, what our fans are like. They love to hear it as it is. And uh, certainly I, I had some halcyon days when, when I was in charge. So can't, can't take that away from me. No. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.